Well, good morning. I am Andrew King. I am the pastor of Youth and Family here at Hope Community Church, and I get the gift of, of preaching uh, this morning, and it's always a, a humbling experience. So delighted to be here with you guys. We're continuing in our sermon series looking at the life of Moses, and today our passage comes from Numbers 20, which is towards the end of their time in the wilderness. So the passage will pop up uh, behind me. You can look at your bulletins and and follow along. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray for our, our time together. The entire Israelite community entered the wilderness of Zen in the first month, and they settled in Kadesh. Miriam died and was buried there. There was no water for the community, so they assembled against Moses and Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the Lord's assembly into the wilderness for us and our livestock to die here? Why have you led us up from Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's not a place of grain, figs, vines, and pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting. They fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord spoke to Moses, Take the staff and assemble the community. You and your brother Aaron are to speak to the rock while they watch, and it will yield its water. You will bring out water for them from the rock and provide drink for the community and their livestock. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron summoned the assembly in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock for you? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff, so the abundant water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me to demonstrate my holiness in the sight of the Israelites, You will not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord, and he demonstrated his holiness to them. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the gift of this morning, a time that is um, set aside to come and worship you. I pray that um, this would be a space where you would calm our anxious thoughts and that we could set aside the things that we bring into this space and that you would speak to us in powerful ways. I pray that you would become more, more beautiful and believable this morning. Um, I pray uh, that you would reveal to us the areas of our own life where we um, sometimes let anger and rage consume us and would we be moved at your grace and forgiveness towards us. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Uh, so this spring, we took a group of our upperclassmen uh, down to Clemson, South Carolina to uh, check out the University of Clemson and also check out one of the um, campus ministries there, RUF. And so I was there with a few of our leaders and um, some of our staff, Mac Harris and Jen Crisp. And the trip was going really, really well overall. Um, we had rented two vans. And our second day there, we're driving around campus, and I get a call from Mac Harris, who's driving the other van, and he said that he had just heard a pop as he was pushing down on the brakes, and he said the brakes were no longer working. 
properly. So we quickly pull over. Um, we turn down First Avenue of Champions. If you were ever wondering what the address to the, the Clemson Stadium was, it's uh, First Avenue of Champions. So we turn down there. We park in the parking lot. We let the students go and do a, a tour of the campus. And then Mac and I start trying to figure out a plan. So I, I get on the phone. I call roadside assistance for our, our rental company. And at first, it seems like this is going to be a pretty smooth process. They say that they're going to send a tow truck out. They'll take care of it. And so what we do is we end up going to uh, Clemson Prez, a, a friend of ours, um, and we post up there and we shuttle the rest of the students there. And so we kind of shift our plans. A group of people end up going back earlier, and I stick behind with five or so of our students. And um, yeah, it was, I was so excited about this day, and I was kind of having to let go of some of my own expectations. And I was, I was pretty calm, especially like in the first couple hours. But then once we were stranded there for another uh, third hour, I, I started to get a little frustrated. And during this time, I, I'm continuing to call roadside assistance, and I'm kind of getting the same thing over and over and over again. And so the first, and then the, the fourth hour, I start to lose my, my patience with them a little bit. My voice starts to get a little bit louder. And then by the fifth hour, uh, they no longer deserved my kindness or gracious attitude. They deserved my anger and disappointment. I went from being kind and patient to demanding them to make it right. And so some of that, like my anger, there was some righteousness there. They needed to fix this problem, but it's such a fine line between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Um, and I was definitely starting to let that anger and rage, I would, I hid away in the, their library that they had, and so that hopefully the students couldn't hear me, but I was definitely getting frustrated, and my anger and rage was starting to bubble over. And I share that because that's what we're seeing in our, in our story today with Moses, but instead of it just being five, six hours and coming home late, he'd been dealing with a complaining group of Israelites for close to 40 years now. And just to frame our time and even thinking about anger, I wanted to start with a quote from Dan Allender and Trimper Longman from their book, The Cry of the Soul. They, they give this beautiful de definition of both the, the beauty of anger, the good that it can bring about, but also the damage. They, they write, God designed and blessed anger in order to energize our passion and destroy sin. Anger can be lovely and redemptive, but it can also be ugly and vindictive. It depends in part on the object of the anger how it is expressed, and why the anger is unleashed. And here what we see from Moses is not this loving redemption that he's bringing about. Rather, we see an ugly and vindictive anger bubbling over. So as we've been walking through, uh, looking at the life of Moses, their time in the wilderness, what we see is this people that they're constantly discontent they're constantly grumbling, even as Moses is leading with kindness and grace a good chunk of the time, and God is leading them in the wilderness graciously, always faithfully providing for them. They continue 
to grumble. Last week's passage about them longing for something else to eat besides the manna was roughly a year into their journey. And our passage today, as I said, it's, it's towards the end of their wilderness wandering. So they've been wandering in the wilderness for roughly 40 years, and they've been through a ton in the wilderness together. Some have lost their lives because of their rebellion, and also this, the first generation of people in the wilderness, they no longer are able to enter into the promised land that they were told they, they would get to be a part of because of their rebellion. And while this does seem harsh, the way that God does um, punish them, he never leaves them. His presence remains, and he continues to meet their daily need. He is faithful to um, his people. Yet they continue to be quick to forget. They continue to grumble and complain, and that's really the only thing that they are quick to do. They are quick to forget the promises of God. And as we look at this passage and ask the question, what have they learned during their time in the wilderness over 40 years? The answer is really not much. They have the same complaints they did at the beginning of their journey. I got to preach on Exodus 17 roughly two months ago, and it's a a similar passage of them complaining about being thirsty. Here's, Here's what they complained about then. It says, Why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so this was roughly like a few months into their journey. But then we pick up in our passage today and we see a very, very similar complaint. The text tells us that they assembled together and they quarreled against them, saying, and just picture this like mob of people coming to Moses and Aaron, and this is what they say. If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the Lord's assembly into the, this wilderness for us and our livestock to die here? Why have you led us up from Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's not a place of grain, figs, vines, and pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. And so here, again, they are complaining for God not meeting their needs, and they're taking this out on both Moses and Aaron. And what they are experiencing, what they're saying is that they would have rather died back in uh, an account. They're referring back to Numbers 16 when the ground actually opened up and swallowed uh, a group of people that were rebelling against them, against God and against Moses and Aaron. And they question why they've even been brought out to this land. And this is the second generation that's, that's complaining about this. And they say that it's an evil land and they're complaining about everything that it does not have. And you can feel Moses and Aaron's desperation in verse six, where it says, then Moses and Aaron went, down, went from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting. They fell face down. What I thought about as I was thinking about that was when we finally get our boys down and say it's been a hard night, I've probably lost my temper a couple of times and then we're like maybe excited about watching a show together, but instead of that, we just fall, fall into our bed, just feeling defeated after the night. And that's like, that's probably a little bit of what Moses and Aaron were feeling. They felt so defeated and they just fall down before the face of the Lord. And it seems like these are two men that have come to the end of themselves, desperate in need of the Lord to intervene. And the beautiful thing is that's what the Lord does. 
the Lord shows up and he instructs them, take the staff and assemble the community. You and your brother Aaron are to speak to the rock while they watch and it will yield its water. You will bring out water for them from the rock and provide drink for the community and their livestock. And for a moment, it seems like we're going to get this same story that we read about back in Exodus 17, where God's grace does flow forth to a complaining people. But things take a turn. So we read, So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron summoned the assembly in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels. Must we bring water out of this rock for you? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff so that abundant water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. See, Moses pivots from God's instructions and in what seems like a fit of rage of just anger bubbling over, he calls the people rebels and rather than speaking to the rock, he strikes it twice in anger. On the surface, it can seem like Moses' actions are justifiable, that he's been at this for four years and he's still being criticized. Why can't they just go up to him and say how great of a leader he has been? Thank you for this manna and the way that God has provided for us. Um, It's kind of easy to ask the question, what's so bad about Moses finally calling this rebellious people out? And Tim Keller is helpful here as he describes some of what's going on. He says, God was ready to be gracious, but Moses was in no mood for that. The relentless criticism had been him, but had been him self-righteous, had made him self-righteousness. He held them in contempt. He had wrath but no compassion, and that is the mark of a man who is becoming less like God, not more. Moses is a man who has forgotten grace. And the sign of it is a sanctimonious spirit along with words of denunciation without humility and compassion. So Moses' actions reflect a man who has forgotten God's grace and goodness. And that has left him as an angry and self-righteous old man. Instead of being a a mediator for God and a conduit of his grace, He puts himself in place as judge, puts God to the side, and takes credit for the water flowing from the rock. And the great irony of this situation is Moses is calling, as he's calling the Israelites rebels, he, in that moment, is rebelling against God and what he has commanded him to do. We're seeing the results of what happens when someone forgets God's grace. Consumed with anger, it leads to self-justifying, destructive rage. And sadly, this is a familiar story. We can probably all think of someone or maybe even moments in our own life where we've been consumed by anger and rage. And in that moment where we let it bubble over, take control, or maybe we've been a victim there, there's this wake of damage that's caused through our anger bubbling up and behind that wake is just broken relationships, hurt, and shame. Looking back at at Allender and Longman in their book, um, they explain uh, why do people rage? 
in this world. And they say it is because they want to be free of their chains and fetters. They want to cut loose and do as they desire. They do not want the restraint placed on them by the rule of God. Unrighteous anger is a hammer that tries to break the bond of servitude connecting to us, to us, to our creator. Unrighteous anger delivers us from trusting a God who does not comply with our desires. Oddly, however, unrighteous anger also draws our deepest desires to the surface and leaves us even emptier than we were before. It is the exposure of unrighteous anger's impotency that leaves us naked before the expected anger of God. You kind of get this picture of what an angry person is, is they have a hammer and everything is a nail, and it's so destructive. And because of this, Moses and Aaron, they're left exposed, and we see that their actions do not go unpunished, because for God to be perfectly just, there are consequences for all of our actions. That's where we get to the end of our passage today. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me to demonstrate my holiness in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and he demonstrated his holiness to them. See, this this consequence, it, it may seem harsh on the surface, but what we see with Moses' actions, they're, they're coming from a place of not trusting God. And he ends up misrepresenting God before the Israelites. And instead of allowing God's grace to flow forth to this undeserving people, he acts as judge and he condemns them. He tells them that they're not deserving of God's grace. And his actions, they come from this place of unbelief and unfaithfulness to God. Yet if, we've, if you're familiar with anger and how it even bubbles up in your own life, isn't there something so satisfying, so intoxicating about it? Frederick Buechner kind of gets at this, kind of this, this lure that, that we get drawn in with our anger. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue, the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the last, the last twosome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. However, there's great cost with our anger. He goes on and he says, the chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. See, what Buechner is getting at there is he's saying there's like this satisfaction with our anger, especially immediately. We're like, this is what these people deserve, so I'm just gonna let my wrath out. And our anger is like this fire that when it's let loose, it just burns everything to the ground. We see kind of this immediate, these immediate consequences when we let our anger take hold of us. And a lot of times we end up destroying ourselves if we let that anger and rage take hold of us. So maybe you're sitting here and, and you relate to Moses and his anger. 
Maybe you're feeling shame about how you've hurt people um, when you've allowed your anger and rage to take over. And you might be wondering how could uh, God's kindness, how could his grace, how could he have favor with me? I've caused so much damage, so much pain, so much hurt. It feels irreparable. Or maybe you're sitting in this room and you've been the victim of someone else's anger and it's, distor- it's distorted how you see, understand, and relate to God. The beauty of God's word is that it gives us hope when we're feeling overwhelmed by hurt and pain that we've caused or maybe that we've experienced from others. And as I, as I studied this passage throughout the week, my, my first reaction was conviction. I was taken back by Moses' anger um, and the harshness of God's punishment. I felt convicted by the way my own anger bubbles up in my own life, and I was saddened by the way that I, I give in to my own anger and inner rage um, and how I pivot from God's grace. And I think in many ways this, this passage is such a, um, I think it should cause all of us to pause be it if we're in Christian leadership or at work we have some leadership position or if we have kids, we're leading in some way, shape, or form. And I think a question to ask ourselves is, have you forgotten God's grace? But there was a movement for me. And, and I, I was amazed by God's grace and kindness I thought a lot about um, Tim Keller this week, and a lot of, I don't, I don't know if you know who he is, he passed away roughly a little over a week ago now, um, and he's a pastor in our denomination that helped me to understand God's grace and kindness, and in almost every article I've read, one of the things that, that people communicated about him was that he, he made Christ more beautiful and more believable. And there was a moment for me in this passage where God's grace just bubbled up and he became more beautiful. And we see his, his grace towards Moses as we know that his, with his punishment, it wasn't as harsh as him, God leaving his presence. God does not leave his presence. And we know from later scripture that Moses ends up in glory um, with the Lord. We know that from Um, the Gospels where it tells us of the Mount of Transfiguration or even in Hebrews 11 where Moses is listed as one that lived by faith. But that's not really where I was struck by God's grace. See, so much of the Old Testament, even as we look back at this time in the wilderness, we're not supposed to look at Moses and admire how great of a leader he was. Rather, we're, we're to look at how he points us to the greater mediator, the one that did not fail, the one that does not disappoint. In Corinthians 10, Paul tells us that the rock in the wilderness was Christ. He was the one that was struck down for our sake. And he is the source of living water, the only thing that will satisfy our deepest cravings and deepest longings. So he lived the perfect life, and we never see him act in unbelief or disobey the Father's will. The night that Jesus was betrayed and the night before he would go to the cross, he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. 
And then again a second time he prays this, my father, if this cannot pass, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. See, what we see is Jesus wrestling with God's will, yet he is faithfully obedient. And as Jesus is betrayed by Judas, he does not retaliate in anger and rage. He submits to the Father's will. And as he's put on trial and falsely accused, he does not get defensive and fight back. He submits to the Father's will. And as he is betrayed by one of his closest friends, Peter, he does not condemn Peter after he's been betrayed. Rather, he, he restores and dignifies him. And as he's beaten, mocked, spit on, and crucified, he does not curse those who condemn him, who curse at him. He continues to forgive, and he prays for those that are inflicting so much pain. He prays, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And when the soldiers mocked him, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. He does not save himself. He submits to the Father's will. See, Jesus willingly takes betrayal, the mocking, the shame, the excruciating pain, the wrath of the people, and worst of all, the wrath and anger of God. And he does all this to save us so that we can have forgiveness. And this is the ultimate display of God's loving kindness to us. And it is in receiving his loving kindness and forgiveness that changes us. And forgiveness, kindness, and love, they are powerful. I know I've mentioned this TV show before. It feels fitting with the last episode airing this upcoming Wednesday. Yes, I'm talking about Ted Lasso. Um, it's, it's one of my favorite shows, and I think in so many ways, the reason why is because it captures the power and the beauty of forgiveness. In the first season, Ted Lasso, he spends the day with this um, ruthlessly honest reporter from the Independent, Trent Krim. And you think it's going to be this, this article that will come out that's like ripping Ted and his, uh, his style of coaching apart, just listing all the ways that he is going to fail. And at the end of the episode, they read the article. And I wanted to read it. Um, he says, this is Trent Krim writing, whatever you think of Ted Lasso as a football coach, I assure you the truth is harder to swallow and swallow you must because Ted is out there in the community either bravely or stupidly facing the music and that's for you to decide. And yes, he's in over his head. He insisted twice that he didn't care if Richmond won or lost but if the Lasso way is wrong, it's hard to imagine being right. In a business that celebrates ego, Ted reigns his in. His coaching style is subtle. It never hits you over the head, whether that means allowing followers to become leaders or in a show of respect, eating food so spicy, it's sure to wreak havoc on your intestinal system. And though I believe that Ted Lasso will fail here and Richmond will suffer the embarrassment of relegation, I won't gloat when it happens because I, I can't help but root for him.
And see, what this show displays as you watch it throughout the three seasons is Ted's consistent kindness, his willingness to forgive even when he's betrayed. It has the undertones of the gospel. And any great piece of art, um, poetry, movie, TV, TV show like Ted Lasso, I think when we see um, glimpses of the gospel, if they know it or not, they're responding to that. And I think in so many ways, it, it points to the greatest story ever told. The greatest story of forgiveness and kindness and grace that we see in the life of Jesus. In Titus, Paul writes, and I think this is just this beautiful explanation of the gospel. He writes, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. See, in Jesus, God is gentle with us in our anger, rage, and rebellion. We simply need to look to, to Christ and to trust in him. And we can't do anything if we are in him to be prevented to go into the promised land. We are promised eternal life in him. And when we are aware of God's grace to us in Jesus, that melts our anger and self-righteousness away and it brings this joy and delight that bubbles up in us. And we get to be conduits of his grace. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you uh, for this morning and thank you um, that we are not left to ourselves in our anger and inner rage. Uh, thank you for your grace. I pray that the reality of, of what you did for us through your son would sink in. I pray that it would um, change the way we live. I pray, Father, that as we uh, think about this passage, as we think about the, the words from Titus 3, that, that you would become more uh, beautiful and believable. Um, yeah, thanks for the gift of your grace and forgiveness. We pray this in your name. Amen.